Welcome to the China in the World podcast, a series of discussions examining China's foreign policy and shifting engagement with the world. The China in the World podcast is brought to you by Carnegie China and hosted by me, Paul Hanley. Welcome, everyone, to the third panel of the Carnegie Global Dialogue series for 2022 and 2023. My name is Paul Hanley. I'm the director of Carnegie China, and I'm glad to be joined today by Dr. Li Ming Zhang, Alexander Gabuev, and Huang Ti Ha to discuss China-Russia relations one year into the war in Ukraine. For those who are not familiar with the Carnegie Global Dialogue series, this is our 11th year of hosting the series. It is a series of panel discussions that look at China's evolving foreign policy and international role from the perspective of Carnegie scholars and experts from across the globe and at each of the locations of our global centers. And you'll be able to find replays of the dialogues uh, that we've had previously and today's on the uh, Carnegie uh, China, China in the World podcast site. So turning today, today's discussion, let me uh, introduce each of our speakers. Dr. Li Mingzhang is with us tonight. He is an associate professor and provost chair in international relations at Rajaratnam School of International Studies, otherwise known as RSIS here in Singapore. Mingzhang's main research areas include Chinese foreign policy, Chinese economic statecraft, Sino-US relations, and Chinese politics. He's the author of a number of books, uh, 15 books. He was author, editor, and co-editor, uh, including New Dynamics in US-China Relations, Contending for the Asia-Pacific, and Mao's China and the Sino-Soviet Split, Ideological Dilemma in 2012. Dr. Li also serves as a member of the editorial board for the East Asia Policy Journal, and the Journal of Defense Management. Alexander Gabuev uh, has been with the Carnegie Endowment for some time now. He is now the incoming director for the Carnegie Russia Eurasia Center. Um, Alex is a, a frequent participant in our Carnegie Global Dialogue series. We're glad to have him back again for our discussion this year. His research centers on Russian foreign policy with particular focus on the impact of the war in Ukraine and China-Russia relations. Since joining Carnegie in 2015, Alex has contributed commentary and analysis to a wide range of publications. You've probably read him in the Financial Times or the Wall Street Journal or The Economist, among many others. And last but not least uh, is Ms. Huang Ti Ha, Senior Fellow and the Co-Coordinator of the Regional Strategic and Political Studies Program at the Institute for Southeast Asian Studies, ICS, the Yusof Ishak Institute. Her research uh, interests include major power relations in Southeast Asia and political security issues within ASEAN. Prior to her current position, Ms. Huang was a lead researcher of political security at the ASEAN Studies Center of ICS. She joined the ASEAN Department of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Vietnam in 2004, and then moved on to work at the ASEAN Secretariat for nine years, with her last post being the Assistant Director, Head of the Political Cooperation Division. Um, and if you're interested in hearing more of Juan Tiha's perspectives, he recently joined the China in the World podcast, and I'd encourage everyone to listen to that episode. It was a terrific discussion. 
Before we kick on, and let me let me just say to our speakers, thank you very much uh, for joining our discussion tonight. And I know our audience is very much looking forward to hearing your perspectives and your and your insights. Before we kick off our discussion, let me just go through a couple of uh, housekeeping items. First, we will give the audience an opportunity to ask our guests a questions during the discussion tonight. We've already got one question in from Santiago Chile. Uh, so please, if you want to submit a question, please use the chat function on YouTube. Second, we'll be posting a recording of this discussion as an episode on our China and the World podcast site. And again, you'll be able to find this one and, and all the previous ones uh, if you go to the China in the World podcast on all major podcast streaming platforms. So with that, let's kick things off. Our topic for tonight's discussion uh, is China-Russia relations, one year into the war in Ukraine. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has been a watershed moment in international politics for a variety of reasons. Uh, it has sparked the largest land war in Europe since World War II, and it has led to a severing of economic ties between Russia and the West. We've seen new members uh, in NATO, Sweden and Finland. Uh, we've seen uh, exacerbating uh, global inflation. Uh, the war has also created major disruptions around energy, uh, food security. And of course, it, uh, for the purposes of our discussion tonight, it has highlighted in, in new ways the greater strategic alignment between China and Russia that we've been witnessing. Uh, culminating, of course, in the announcement by Presidents Xi and President Putin of a no-limit strategic partnership less than three weeks before Russia's military invasion of Ukraine. Bilateral trade between Beijing and Moscow is actually on the rise. Trade hit a record $190 billion, billion last year. Chinese and Russian diplomats maintain frequent contact. Earlier this month, we saw Vice Foreign Minister Ma Xu visited Russia, uh, and on his way to the Munich Security Conference, Wang Yi is also expected to travel to Russia next week. And there's some speculation that we may see a visit to Moscow by President Xi Jinping this spring. Bilateral military exercises continue between the two countries. They've conducted strategic bomber drills over the Sea of Japan. They've held their an annual Vostok exercises. Uh, nonetheless, Chinese diplomats uh, continue to express rhetorical support for territorial integrity in Ukraine, and they argue that China takes a neutral position to the war in Ukraine. And so to unpack all of this for us tonight, we have three terrific experts. And I will start uh, with a question uh, for each of you, and I'm going to start uh, with Alex uh, to respond, but just to want to kick off with a high-level framing question. And that is, how do you assess today the China-Russia partnership one year into the Ukraine war? Is the China-Russia strategic partnership, is it stronger today? Is it weaker today? Is it the same as before? And let me turn it over to Alex to kick us off for our discussion. I think that the partnership uh, is the same and the trend line is the same. It's getting thicker and bigger, and it's getting increasingly asymmetric with China having more leverage and getting more and more options. 
in this relationship rather than Russia. It's a mutually beneficial relationship where China benefits somewhat more than Russia, but Russia benefits as well. And that's a relationship that will not be an alliance, but will be an increasingly close coordination and increasingly on Beijing terms. Terrific, terrific, Alex. That's a, a, a terrific, concise answer to frame things up um, bigger, but asymmetric. And that asymmetric uh, dimension is something to watch going forward. Let me turn, if I could, to Li Mingjiang at this point. What's your assessment one year into the war of the strategic partnership between China and Russia? I tend to agree with Alex. I think it's more or less the same. I look at the political relationship, leadership interactions, um, and some of the common uh, convergent views on important global issues. Uh, and you look at um, economic ties and other, including like a social cultural exchanges, we don't, I don't see any weakening uh, in this relationship. Um, and certainly, you know, the, this whole issue of the war, uh, Russia's invasion of uh, Ukraine, was not something that's really in the relationship between China and Russia. It was not something that Russia did to undermine China's interest, to challenge directly China's interest. Uh, so, um, and um, I also agree with Alex that, you know, perhaps from the Chinese pers perspective, you know, they have uh, uh, tried their best, uh, they have done their maximum to not to be perceived by Moscow as uh, having betrayed the strategic partnership. So it's more or less the same, although we know that there's a lot of debate, a lot of like uh, internal discussions in China among people in the wider policy community. There are grievances, certainly. There are you know, all these calculations of costs and benefits. But by and large, I think it's uh, the fundamentals of uh, China-Russia partnership have not been neg negatively affected. Thank you, Mingjiang. I do want to ask you a follow-on. I just want to press you a little bit. Um, on this uh, notion that the invasion of Ukraine is not something that has undermined China's interest. And you will recall last year at this time, after the invasion, uh, there were a lot of speculation as to what President Xi knew in terms of President Putin's plans. Of course, they met uh, just less than three weeks before uh, at the Chinese Olympics. Um, and it seems to be that, uh, you know, it's hard to know what the two uh, leaders discussed, but um, most, I think, would believe that President Xi did not know that Putin would conduct a full-scale invasion, that he would go for Kiev, the capital. Uh, potentially, he thought that it would be limited to the uh, southeast uh, area of, of Ukraine. Um, there's spec there's reports that the 6,000 Chinese citizens in Ukraine did were not warned or cautioned that there would be a full-scale invasion. It has also put a spotlight on the China-Russia relationship internationally and in ways that have led countries uh, in Asia and in Europe to worry that potentially Taiwan 
uh, is really at risk now because of the strategic partnership, um, because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And what does that mean for Taiwan? Um, do you see it that way? I mean, does are there reputational, uh, you know, when you say it hasn't undermined China's interests, in those ways, would you say that China's interests are, are, are undermined? Or how do you look at that question? Uh, that's that's a fabulous question. Um, I mean, uh, yeah, you look at the larger uh, global strategic perspective, there are certainly costs for China, uh, losses for China, and some of the losses are perhaps quite significant, uh, including China's relations with the United States, China's relations with Western European countries, EU countries, uh, and now this growth of negative perceptions of China uh, among elites and even other people in many Western countries. Uh, and these sort of costs, uh, you know, could have, could be long-term, uh, certainly. But, um, you know, the Chinese uh, analysts will say that um, there are also benefits, right? Uh, you know, you, you end up having a situation which uh, the U.S. will have to now deal with really two potential enemies or challengers, and uh, that will help divert a bit, at least a bit of uh, American attention and resources from the Asia Pacific region. Um, and um, um, yeah, there, there could be um, a negative consequence uh, for the Taiwan issue as well. The whole Taiwan issue has become more international. We're seeing a lot more political, even economic support from Western countries uh, for Taiwan. But that makes uh, mainland China and Beijing's any plan for the Taiwan issue a bit more difficult. Uh, but what I uh, was trying to say is that uh, these costs um, uh, have not really impacted the fundamental aspects of the relations between China and Russia. Um, you, you, you do see grievances, you do see you know, negative uh, sort of attitudes uh, um, uh, in the Chinese policy community. And we've seen actually a bit of you know, effort made by Chinese officials themselves trying to appear a bit of distance from Russia uh, as a posture. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah. but fundamentally, I think the relationship uh, remains robust. Okay, thank you very much for that. Huang Tiha, what is your sense uh, one year into this? You sit here in Southeast Asia uh, with me uh, in Singapore. As you look at the China-Russia partnership, strategic partnership one year into the Ukraine war, do you agree with Ming Zhang and uh, Alex that it's that it's potentially stronger, uh, growing as asymmetric, as, as Ming Zhang said, certainly not weakening? Yes, uh, thanks, Paul. I think it is hard not to disagree with what Alex and Ming Zhang mentioned because uh, you mentioned the economic figures and all the bilateral political and defense exchanges, uh, and uh, all point to the to the fact that the relations are getting closer. And um, I think Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the chain reaction in its aftermath really added to the momentum. Uh, to the structural drivers that had brought the two countries closer together in the first place, um, mainly their 
shared uh, apprehensions against uh, the West and also their economic uh, complementarities. So um, the structural uh, factors have been um, consolidated and also the bromance between President Xi and President Putin uh, uh, is a big factor behind the, 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 the closer relationship between uh, the two countries. And over the past year, both leaders have really tightened their grip on power. And that means that, you know, they make sure that the entire society and the state um, toe their line in, in furthering the relationship. And there is very little tolerance of, 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 of different uh, standpoints. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I think authoritarian leaders tend to double down rather than change costs. Great, uh, thank you for that, uh, Huang Tia. Um, I'll continue with you and then turn to Mingjiang and Alex. There uh, have been some, I mean, you, you've basically said uh, very similarly, uh, I think fundamental aspects of the China-Russia partnership, you know, remain the same, maybe even stronger. Um, you mentioned the bromance, uh, the strong personal ties between President Xi and President Putin, sharing caviar and celebrating birthdays together, um, having... I think a lot of things in common in terms of governance issues related to their own countries, and frankly, also how they see the world in terms of geopolitics and international political order, and their frustration with the role of the United States in the broader West. Um, but we have seen some things this year, and I want to ask you about those, that have indicated some misalignment, tensions, not entirely clear, but if you go back to the Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit in the fall, and before President Xi met with President Putin, of course, that was President Xi's first meeting that he had coming out of COVID after three years of isolation. I think that's fairly significant. I think that sends a signal that that's the China-Russia relationship is still important today. But it was interesting that before the meeting started, President Putin said that he was looking forward to addressing some of President Xi's questions and concerns over the war in Ukraine. And a lot of analysts were trying to figure out what was going on there. And then during the meeting in Beijing with the German Chancellor, Schultz, uh, late last year, you know, it did not go unnoticed when President Xi expressed China's opposition to the use of nuclear weapons. And that, of course, was a statement that was viewed as a warning, in a sense, to President Putin at a time where there was growing concern that President Putin may uh, consider using tactical nuclear weapons in the context of the Ukraine conflict. Um, and so, you know, how do you, what are, what are these things that we're seeing? Are they indications of some repositioning uh, by China in terms of its stance on the Ukraine war? Are they not that significant in your mind? Um, what, what do they mean? And do they indicate China's stance uh, is shifting in some way? You're asking me? Yes, I'll go to you. That's okay. And I'll okay. turn to I think um, China's approach to the war in Ukraine and how to deal with the relationships uh, uh, with other players um, related to the war, I think the approach is not like in binary terms either or, right? So it being, being more, uh, getting more closer to uh, having a closer relationship with Russia doesn't mean that being stuck with Russia 
And um, China wants to have its own freedom and flexibility to position itself in different ways um, on the world development uh, to, it, 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 so that it can speak different languages uh, with different types of audience. Uh, so, and, and it's also in the interest of China uh, in the relationship with that particular uh, audience. For example, when he, when he met Biden, uh, he said that um, nuclear blackmail was, is not acceptable, which is actually in China's interest as well. And when he was at the SEO, uh, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, uh, the membership of which uh, included Central Asian countries, and of course, being Russian neighbors, they are very concerned about uh, that violation of the UN Charter and the invasion of a sovereign state. So Xi Jinping, I think the rhetoric of supporting territorial dispute and sovereignty is just, you know, a very, um, fit, um, fit narrative for these countries. And of course, when he met Putin, he says that he wanted to join, uh, Russia wants to join Russia and other progressive forces against hegemony and power politics. So that is the freedom and the flexibility that China reserves for itself in responding to the different dimensions of the war. Got it. Thank you very much. Bing Zhang, I want to turn to you on this as well. Um, but I do want to, you know, note I, in, in an article that you wrote recently in the South China Morning Post, um, you wrote that while China remains committed to the Sino-Russia partnership, recent diplomatic efforts show it's also concerned about protecting its global image. And so, you know, how is that impacting, in your view, if at all, China's stance uh, with regard to the war in Ukraine? I think you're on mute. Yeah, yep. I think yeah. I think um, there are a number of things um, that uh, Chinese leaders and their senior officials may regret now. Uh, I think in retrospect, they may have realized that um, they could have uh, handled China, Russia relationship and the war much better from the very beginning. Remember, immediately after Putin's uh, visit to China to attend the Winter Olympic. There's a lot of rhetoric in China uh, saying that uh, the partnership between China and Russia would, would be uh, no limit, right? No limit cooperation, no limit in terms of scope of cooperation, et cetera. Uh, that rhetoric uh, went very high and created a lot of international attention, especially from many Western countries. Uh, and people were very sus suspicious of such rhetoric. And then that put China um, on a quite awkward position when uh, Putin launched the war. Um, and then I, I guess you, know, you look at the fact that uh, Mr. Lo Yucheng, right? Uh, many of you probably know the name. He was he uh, front runner for foreign minister position. Um, but uh, the fact that he was moved out of the Minister of Foreign Affairs uh, you know, apparently, the motion in terms of uh, you know theoretical ranking, I think it's it's a it's a clear sign that the top leaders were unhappy about all these rhetorical hypes uh, mm -hmm. during during um, um, those weeks. Um, another thing I think Chinese officials may uh, now regret is uh, a 
insufficient effort, inadequate effort to try to make China's position on the war itself um, clearer, right? Now we know on the, in terms of the triggers of the war, origin of the war, China pretty much started with Russia, the official uh, explanation. And on the war itself, you see uh, quite ambiguous statements coming out of Chinese leaders and their um, uh, spokespeople. So uh, I think there's a sense that, you know, Beijing could have been at least slightly um, more critical of the war itself, the invasion itself. Uh, so, uh, and that would be another one. And um, uh, a third uh, issue that I think some Chinese officials may, um, in retrospect, uh, feel that they could have done better uh, would be, you know, this, this public uh, uh, diplomacy. You know, uh, in how you engage with media, Western, social, political elites, and uh, research community in many countries. Right. Uh, you know, in the minds of a lot of people, you know, China's position, China's response um, has been pretty much like supporting Russia, siding with Russia. Um, so I think I think people in China may have realized that they could have done better to 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 make it clear that uh, you know China was um, not really uh, supporting Russia. You know, there are some differences. And also in terms of actual diplomatic uh, actions, uh, China could have learned from what India did, for instance, right? Uh, India, in the month after the invasion, um, no, was trying to be neutral, but it, it, it did do something, do certain things to uh, you know, be critical of Russia and also to engage with Ukraine. So yeah, in that regard, um, in this regards, I think um, uh, things could have been done better. Thank you for that. Before I turn to Alex, uh, you mentioned um, Ukraine, and I, I, I have a question that came in from Ian Chong, who's a non-resident uh, scholar with Carnegie China um, and at the National University of Singapore. Um, he asks, and I'll ask you about this, Ming Zhang, the 2013 PRC-Ukraine Treaty of Friendship and Cooperation, which uh, within the treaty says that a PRC, PRC is committed to Ukrainian security and sovereignty, including a guarantee of assistance in the wake of a nuclear threat. Uh, Ian asked, where does this treaty stand now, and what does it mean about PRC international commitments, especially Articles 4 and 6? Uh, if I am not mistaken, it's a statement uh, rather than a treaty, but I may be wrong. I need to double check. And uh, the articles, uh, the statements in these documents um, are a little bit ambiguous. It's not a, you know, black and white, you know, Chinese commitment to protect Ukraine if Ukraine is threatened or attacked militarily by another country. Uh, so you have this bit of ambiguity there. And certainly, I think a lot of people, especially people in Ukraine, will regard this as uh, you know, China not honoring its commitment, whatever, uh, is formal, informal, or legal, or whatever. So you, yeah, you, you have this sort of feeling 
um, and also even some people in China will question this. Uh, uh, people who are against Russians' war in Ukraine uh, will say, you know, China you know, said this and that to the Ukrainians, and now you know um, there's no uh, really uh, direct uh, diplomatic political support to, to Ukraine. Uh, so it's it's an issue, um, yeah, um, yeah. Perhaps uh, also to add to the list of uh, you know Chinese regrets, uh, that would be something that I think Chinese officials should not have really uh, made that sort of commitment. Ukraine. Yeah, thank you for that. And I got a, a note from my staff who I guess doing some fact checking. It was uh, it was a treaty signed by Xi Jinping and Viktor Yanukovych before the annexation of uh, Crimea, parts of eastern Ukraine. Um, let me turn now to uh, Alex uh, and get your views on on some of the things that I mentioned we've seen over the the, the um, at the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and then the statement that President Xi and the Chinese side made during the German Chancellor's visit. Do you see any indication of shifting on China's part, specifically with regard to the war in Ukraine? Three very quick points. Let's zoom out and see where China's interests are with regard to the war. It has a partnership with Russia that is important. Russia is a large neighbor to the north. Having a stable, peaceful border with Russia is quintessential for China. If Russia turns into a pro-US democracy, applies to NATO, that's a strategic nightmare for, for China. So keeping the Russian foreign policy as it is, probably less hostile, less aggressive, uh, but definitely neutral or China-friendly is a benefit. Uh, accessing Russian natural resources, particularly at a discount, is also very beneficial. And then finally, it's a like-minded authoritarian regime on the UN Security Council among the five permanent members. It's really Russia and China are the authoritarian camp, whereas the US, UK, and France are the other camp. So having Russia as a like-minded partner on this uh, UNP5 is really quintessential since both uh, Xi Jinping's and Vladimir Putin's worldview is very much informed by uh, skepticism, let's put it that way, towards the US and intentions to dismantle the Russian regime or to undercut China's rightful rise as a global superpower. So that's first. Russia is important. And at the same time, China perfectly understands that relationship with the West is of paramount importance. It's a downside road, given the trend line in the US-China competition, but the precious resource that you have as a Chinese policymaker is time. So you need to do what our colleague Evan Feigenbaum calls staging straddle. So you need to triangulate between this needs to appear as a, a country that respects international law, your pragmatic interest with Russia, and the fear that uh, appearance of being close to Putin uh, disrupts your relationship with the West even further. That's point one. Point two, let's do counterfactual. Imagine that China throws Vladimir Putin under the bus, introduces sanctions, and kind of uh, says that the barbaric imperial onslaught against Ukraine is absolutely unacceptable and China joins hands with all of the civilized members of the international community. So if that leads to Putin's downfall, the question in China is, will that 
help that China would provide fundamentally improve US-China relationship? And the answer is no. The expectation is, and I think that's the right expectation, that the West will just pocket this concession and say, okay, China, what about Xinjiang now? What about Taiwan? What about IP theft? What about the PLA spending? What about human rights in Hong Kong? So the deeper fundamental drivers for US-China rivalry will not disappear. Support for Putin is just one problem, but that's not the fundamental problem. So it doesn't matter how much you kind of throw Vladimir Putin under the bus. This is why you need to kind of figure out this way that helps you to not worsen the relationship with the West beyond repair, but at the same time, keep your friend Vladimir Putin afloat. And then my third point is that uh, I think that China has adopted a template it used after 2014 annexation of Crimea and actually after Russia's recognition of Abkhazia in South Ossetia in 2008. China sticks to the letter of international law, like no annexation is recognized. China all the time says that it respects Ukrainian sovereignty and territorial integrity. It says that conflict resolution should be through peaceful means, and then uh, it doesn't support war. But at the same time, it says we don't like unilateral sanctions. And it was supportive of the Russian narrative that, oh, expansion of the US-led alliances is the root cause of evil. And of course, it talks about NATO, but what it means is AUKUS and the U.S. intensifying ties with other uh, partners in uh, in the Pacific to check China's rise. I think that China noted that this rhetoric uh, is ill-received, not only in D.C., but in Europe. And that's where China started to fine-tune and adjust both the domestic propaganda and also the outreach to foreign capitals. So Fu Tong, the ambassador to the EU is doing a very smart uh, charm offensive talking to reporters and saying that, oh, but we didn't know anything about it. And this is how much uh, we are not with that guy. So I think that uh, all of the phrases of Xi Jinping in the Schultz readout, in Biden readout after meeting uh, with Xi in uh, Bali, points to this direction is how China wants to portray its stance, but not necessarily where the real stance is. And just to clarify, you have seen shifts in the way China state media is reporting the conflict in Ukraine, as well as its propaganda domestically? Uh, I, I think I'm basing my assessment of what uh, my friend and great colleague Maria Repnikova in George, uh, Georgia State does. And I think that uh, her conclusion is that there is some shift and uh, there is a more balanced coverage to a degree because China figured out that its propaganda travels outside of China's border. And there are a lot of skilled China watchers that can explain to Western policymakers on how China portrays this war. So the coverage gets somewhat more mutual and then the society is uh, toward, but not that deeply interested in what's going on there. Thank you, uh, Alex. Terrific, terrific responses. Um, I'm going to go back in reverse order. I'm going to go back to Mingjiang again. Um, and just want a couple things that uh, Alex has just said. Number one, you know, the relationship with Russia strategically is important for the security of the two, you know, the, the, the shared border between the two, he mentioned, doesn't help China to have a hostile nation uh, of Russia, you know, to its, uh, on its border. And so it's better to be have friendly, more friendly relations. 
And of course, there's a number of issues, like-minded uh, issues, UN Security Council and other places where they can help each other. Um, and also, Alex mentioned Putin's downfall won't help uh, China's relationship at all with the United States. But what I want to ask is about uh, to what degree, how do you believe the Chinese leadership looks at the conflict in Ukraine right now? Um, how important for President Xi himself, and this comes from a question from Evan Medeiros, um, former uh, senior director in the Obama administration uh, on Asia. You know, how important is it for President Xi uh, that President Putin doesn't lose the war in Ukraine? Is that an important goal for him? And what would President Xi be willing to do to prevent Russia from losing? Well, um, if Russia um, completely loses, there's very little, almost nothing that China can have to save Russia. And I would say China probably doesn't have any strong incentive uh, to uh, uh, help prevent you know, such a scenario, a scenario of um, uh, Russia being completely defeated or uh, Putin uh, losing badly. Uh, you know, one 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 reason is this: you know, if China would uh, go out, uh, do its best to save Putin and Russia, and it would basically lead to uh, almost complete collapse in the relations between China and the U.S., U.S., China, and uh, in, the, in the Western world, uh, EU countries. And that's a huge consequence for China. I don't think Xi Jinping or Chinese are prepared uh, to accept that kind of uh, consequence, right? Um, so, um, to me, that's that's difficult to imagine. Um, and I I think more likely uh, China will continue its wait and see. Um, and um, we didn't see policy and and um, and watch the situation uh, in Ukraine closely. Uh, even if Putin and Russia is defeated militarily and Russia becomes a much weaker power, and that will be uh, something acceptable, I think, for Xi Jinping and for China. Uh, instead of going out to 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 help Russia and save Russia uh, to prevent Russia from being defeated, um, yeah, I, I think yeah, I think that's more likely. And there is a sort of thinking um, in the policy community in China that you know, no matter what, uh, you know, Russia has so many resources. Right? It has a very large population, it has a large territory, and even if it's badly defeated, uh, it won't uh, become a small power. Right. It will remain um, at least the middle power for quite some time. And this defeat, even if Putin is gone, uh, although we don't know whether that's going to happen or not, right, will leave a deep scar in the minds of a uh, lot of Russians, the Russian elites. Uh, it's hard to imagine that uh, in post-war era, if Russia is defeated, uh, you will see Russia completely getting towards the West, going U.S. to you know, uh, to 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 do things against China. Thank you for that. 
I want to turn to Juan Quija and, and get your sense. Do you agree with that? I mean, do you believe that the Chinese side would, would be willing uh, to, to sort of let, if the Russians lose, that that's something that they can live with? Or do you believe that it's very important on the Chinese side that they do something to try to help Russia and prevent uh, Russia, President Putin, from losing? Is that an important goal to the Chinese leadership? I share Ming Jiang's views that, you know, I think China is is not going to extraordinary lengths to keep uh, Putin and Russia from losing the war if uh, that is the trend or the momentum, because the cost of, you know, going to such great lengths to help Russia uh, and, and whether it would be of any help or not, I'm not so sure as well. Uh, it would be uh, immense because it is not only about the collapse of the relationship with Russia, uh, with, with with the U.S. and the West, uh, but also um, the 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 reputational cost of China in the global South as well. Although many of us, many of developing countries, they have ambivalent views about the war in Ukraine, but it doesn't mean that they they agree to uh, the invasion of a sovereign state. And you know, it's, it's a huge strategic cost for China because they they are trying to win over Europe from 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 the U.S. and then doing so would make China completely uh, isolated uh, from the West. I think is even irreversible cost. So I think the ultimate pragmatism of China's foreign policy um, would dictate that you know uh, China would not have such a direct critical stakes in the war in Ukraine that it has to do so for Russia. Thank you for that. Alex, I'm going to turn to you um, on, on this particular issue and dig a little deeper here, because, of course, you remember last year, despite the frustration, I think, from the United States and countries in Europe about Beijing's um, rattle, as Evan Feigenbaum referred to it, um, where it maintains that strategic partnership with Russia, does not criticize Russia for the war, blames it on NATO, but yet tries not to damage China's relations much uh, too much with the United States uh, or Europe. Despite the disappointment, I think, in Washington, D.C., or the frustration that that position may have caused, there were really two things that the administration pressed the Chinese on, and that is to say um, there will be consequences if China undermines the international economic sanctions uh, that have been levied against Russia from President Putin. Uh, and there would be consequences if China provides military armament or equipment uh, to Russia in the context of the war in Ukraine. There have been reports about now several Chinese companies have been sanctioned by U.S. authorities for providing Russia with dual-use technology, like semiconductors and drones and telecommunications equipment. Uh, new reports suggest Chinese state-owned def uh, defense companies are shipping navigation equipment, jamming technology, jet fighter parts to sanction Russian government-owned defense companies. Um, and you hear concerns in Washington about potential slippage in this area, uh, that this could be an area where uh, China uh, may... Uh, a slip a little bit and begin to think based on this question of how important it is it that President Putin and Russia not lose in Ukraine, that maybe we'll see a new information emerge in this area. 
Um, and of course, when you combine that with the recent uh, visit by the vice foreign minister to Russia, the two foreign ministers meeting, and the fact that President Xi may travel there, uh, if any new information comes out, of course, this would put real pressure and 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 real tensions in the U.S.-China relationship. What's your sense, Alex? Uh, these recent revelations, do in your view, they indicate some slippage here on the Chinese side? Are we beginning to see changes regarding China's potential potential sanctions, evasion, and military support for Russia? So, two quick points. Uh, first, on the bigger issue. Uh, I think that we need to define what defeat here means. Uh, Russia is still a nuclear power. Uh, I think that we are not off the hook, unfortunately, of Russia potentially using nuclear weapons if Vladimir Putin believes that his regime, his legacy, his personal survival is under threat on the battlefields in Ukraine. And then it's just very easy to say that, oh, somewhere in Putin's brain, there is a magic line that uh, tells him, here is Russia proper, and here is Ukraine, and that you chopped off Crimea illegally in 2014, and this is why if Ukraine retakes it, it doesn't constitute any major challenge to the territorial sovereignty of Russia. Uh, it's a big risk. We don't know the answer. I think that uh, all the evidence points to the fact that Mr. Putin believes that uh, having Crimea inside Russia has really near sacral uh, meaning for his legitimacy and legacy. And then he won't stop short of any option to keep Ukraine retaking Crimea uh, from happening. So dealing with a nuclear superpower is, is hard. So complete defeat, meaning that Russia pays reparations, returned all of Ukrainian international recognized territory, and Mr. Putin and his friends and all of the people who looted, raided, and killed in Bucha and Irpin travel to Hague uh, is very unlikely. And I think that China knows that very well. So keeping the stalemate, uh, China doesn't need to do any extra effort. What China does, and here I'm coming to your question, is to continue everything what's outside of the scope of the sanctions as a normal practice. It's not illegal to buy Russian oil. Uh, it's, and then India does it, Malaysia does it, many countries do it. Uh, it's not illegal to do a lot of stuff. And everything what's legal is done by China. It's done through RMB, mostly. And it's done using the logistics that's provided by cross-border. When it comes to certain shipments that were reported recently by Wall Street Journal, uh, if you look carefully, uh, these are execution of old contracts that predate this war. And these are mostly between the Chinese sanctioned entities like Polytechnology Group uh, and the Russian sanctioned entities. They are both SDN for quite a long time that putting them on the entity list predates the war. So it's a Chinese sanctioned entity, military industrial giant trading with a Russian sanctioned entity most likely in RMB, most likely on train against the border. It's very hard for me to imagine what the US can do about this, like slap new sanctions on the intermediaries. It's like cutting Hydra's ads. They will grow somewhere else. Uh, and the question for the US policymakers is really, okay, do we design a special sanctions program targeting other parts of the Chinese economy because of that. And we have this hammer 
and say, China, if you don't stop this activity, we will hit you with this hammer. Problem is that Beijing views, for example, the recent uh, Biden's executive orders on October, which kind of puts very significant export control limits on chips and uh, AI and various other cutting edge technology and say, hey, you are doing this anyway. And you are doing this to us because we are China, not because like some company sends a jamming equipment or part of jamming equipment to Russia. So this is happening regardless. And it's very unlikely to me that China will stop this trade, although it's pretty small scale in the middle. Thank you for that, Alex. Ming John, let me turn to you on this question. Um, you know, the Wall Street Journal reports uh, that Alex referred to about these Chinese state-owned defense companies. Uh, and as Alex says, uh, these are likely Chinese sanctioned entities selling equipment to Russian sanctioned entities. And it's hard for the U.S. potentially to do anything about it. But nevertheless, I suspect that these sort of sales would have to receive the political approval uh, by the senior leaders in the Chinese Communist Party. And there's a political signal, of course, that is sent. You've mentioned, you know, that part of the leadership's goal in China would be to try to preserve as much as possible its relationship with the U.S. and the EU and not to damage it um, more, than, more than is required. Uh, these kind of moves, of course, even if they're sanctioned entities, of course, would have a political uh, impact um, on the U.S.-China relationship and China's relationship with Europe as well. So back to the original question, I mean, do you see slippage here? And if so, what political impact will that have? Well, a couple of things can be said. I think, uh, first of all, um, now it's been one year uh, since uh, the war broke out. And as, as we know, um, Chinese government, uh, Chinese companies have been very cautious. Uh, China's uh, major shipping companies, for instance, have intentionally tried to avoid getting involved. They have um, basically uh, refused to, to ship you know, Russian oil. And Chinese banks have made it very clear that they will not uh, get involved in uh, these currency transactions with the Russian entities. And I've uh, I've been asked by some uh, Chinese business people as well. You know, uh, they uh, always ask the, ask the question. You know, do I if I sell some machineries to Russia and the Russian counterparts use those machineries to produce um, you know, military uh, armaments? Is that a violation of the U.S. and European sanctions on Russia? So uh, what I'm trying to say here is uh, Chinese corporate entities. Uh, are very cautious. I think uh, they have learned a very big lesson uh, from case of Huawei and Zhongxin, you know. Um, and, um, and, and certainly, uh, you know, second point, um, um, there will always be loopholes. Uh, there will be some small companies or like what Alex just shared, some of those Chinese companies that um, had already been sanctioned would take the risk and to make some quick money, right? No matter what. Uh, so you, you, you will see this loopholes, this sort of uh, activities. But overall, I think um, so far, a uh, lot of evidence suggests that uh, China at the official level uh, 
uh, does not really uh, want to get involved uh, and does not want to be accused of you know, supporting Russia uh, through yeah. The, yeah, providing all these uh, things and navigation or yeah. parts that uh, could be used for weaponries. I, I agree with you, Ming Zhang. I think it's been surprising to, to many. Um, I think there was a view that maybe China would try to operate in the gray zone where it was ambiguous. Uh, they would do steps to try to help Russia's economy, or they may provide dual use or equipment that's more ambiguous to Russia that they could then use somehow in the context of their war. But China has not done that. China has sort of stepped away from the gray zone and has not done anything that would be ambiguous in nature. And what Alex is suggesting in that these Chinese sanctions entities may, and as you just said, they may go forward with some things. But just for clarity's sake, doesn't that still have to get the senior level of approval in, a, in an issue that is so particularly sensitive uh, geopolitically? Wouldn't these companies, even if they're sanctioned, have to seek approval from the Chinese leadership to be able to move forward on those kind of sales? It's quite possible that they, they will need uh, at least uh, some sort of uh, consent, uh, or is this there, at least there should be no objection, I think. But the what complicates our discussion is, um, you know, as Alex mentioned, um, you know, those transactions were you know, uh, contracts that uh, had been signed before the war. So uh, I don't know uh, whether, uh, you know, Chinese officials were saying now, okay, no matter what, you know, even if it's a deal that was rich before the war, scrap it, uh, don't, don't go ahead and stop the transaction. I, I'm not sure whether the Chinese officials will go that far. Thank you. We've got about five minutes left and I wanna look a little bit forward. I'm gonna start here with Wang Tiha. Um, you know, China stresses that it is in favor of a peaceful solution to the war in Ukraine. Um, we uh, rhetorically, uh, we see China uh, support that. Uh, we've not yet seen China you know, proactively step up in any mediating role uh, or proactive efforts to de-escalate uh, the conflict. And this, I think, generally tracks with China's approach to foreign conflicts, where, you know, rhetorically, uh, it will uh, stress uh, its neutrality, uh, but often, or its or its support for finding diplomatic solutions, but yet uh, hasn't yet stepped up to take a more active role. I wanna explore and start with you, Huang Tihua, whether you see any pathway to a ceasefire or negotiated settlement in Ukraine here in the near term, and if so, what tangible role could China play, will China play in trying to de-escalate the conflict? How realistic is that? The first question about if I see any pathway to a ceasefire or negotiated settlement of uh, Ukraine, I don't see any pathway yet. Uh, it's, it's completely uh, unknown, I think, to uh, all of us. And with regard to China's um, role in somehow it can play in, in the escalating the conflict and how realistic it is, I think that that those are exactly the same questions that the Chinese leaders and policymakers have mulled over since the war broke out. 
um, not without the prodding of some European leaders recently. And I think so far they have been quite reluctant uh, to proactively take this role or search for this role or assert this role is a clear answer uh, that um, China is unwilling uh, to do so. Um, I think the first questions that China would ask is what it would get out of this mediation role. Probably is enhanced international standing and credentials as a peacemaker, right? But they are too vague to be worth the effort of trying and the risk of failing, I think. And will the US and Europe reward China for by for doing so by watering down their strategic competition with Beijing? I think China is very clear-eyed that it is uh, quite magical thinking. And also uh, equally important questions are whether China has any significant influence over the uh, the, the protagonist, the, the worrying parties uh, and the chance of its success. Uh, I also think that China is very realistic uh, about its limited influence over Moscow with regard to the trajectory of its uh, make, uh, warfare in Ukraine. And I think more fundamentally, um, China particularly doesn't feel the overriding imperative and the urgency of de-escalating the conflict because it, it does have conflicted interests in this war. And for all the complications and the negative implication that the war has presented to the Chinese economy or foreign relations with other countries, I still quite buy into uh, this argument that the war in Ukraine uh, really presents a net geopolitical win uh, for, for China. Thank you, Tiha. Alexander, I'm going to turn to you on this question. Do you see a role here for China in de-escalating the conflict? Uh, how real, and, and if so, how realistic is it that China Chinese leaders would, would agree to that kind of role? I fully agree with Tiha. Uh, first, we don't have any demonstrated experience of China mediating conflicts, even in its immediate neighborhood, where it would have tremendous leverage. Look at Myanmar, for example, uh, or North Korea, which you all know much better than any of us, uh, since you've dealt with the issue working in the US government. China basically has provided logistics for the six party talks and was involved, but that didn't lead to any breakthrough because of the North Korean regime, but it's not that China has really thrown all of its way to fix the issue. Uh, so with the parties involved, uh, I, th I think that China is very skeptical and realistic about it. And then when it comes to its influence over Vladimir Putin, indeed, the leverage grows and that China has a lot of cards to play, but it understands how focused Putin is on this war in Ukraine, how important the whole thing is for him. Uh, what he did is very irrational for most of the Chinese policymakers. This is why when the US presented China with evidence of what Russia is about to do, of course, not sharing sensitive uh, sources and methods of the US intelligence community or how the US knew what Putin is about to do, uh, we know that China has shared this information with Moscow and said that the Americans are trying to drive a wedge between us. So now they understand how emotionally focused Putin is on this. Will China's oil embargo change his mind? Very unlikely. And then the definition I hear, and that's my last point, sometimes from the Chinese colleagues is like, 
Russian foreign policy is like a typhoon. So you cannot really control it. You can hedge your bets and hide. And then when on the margins there is strong wind, you can put some wind farms and produce electricity. So use it to your benefit. But the hope that you can really control the typhoon is crazy and we are not the loonies party. Thank you very much. Ming Zhang, you're gonna get the last word of the evening. Uh, do you agree with Tiha, Alexander? Uh, do you have anything additional that you wanna add? You know, overall, I think uh, uh, I would agree. Uh, it's very unlikely that China will become proactive in terms of mediating or uh, play any role between Russia and Ukraine. But I think the Chinese are probably waiting for a moment when both uh, Russia and Ukraine and perhaps uh, Western countries uh, have stronger interest uh, to come to some sort of like a ceasefire or a negotiated, negotiated settlement. And then at that point, China may become a bit more active in terms of, you know, uh, proposing suggestions, uh, even offering a role in a multilateral setting to join France, Germany, or other European countries. And then as a group uh, to mediate and uh, try to facilitate a final settlement. Thank you very much. It's been a terrific discussion. Let me thank uh, Huang Tiha from uh, ICS here in Singapore, Dr. Li Ming Zhang from RSIS in Singapore, and I, Alexander Gabuev from uh, Carnegie Russia Eurasia Center. Thank you for joining us for the Carnegie China Global Dialogue series this year to discuss China Russia, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Paul. Thanks to all of you. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for listening to the China in the World podcast. For more episodes and research, please go to carnegieendowment.org. This episode was produced by Nathaniel Schur with assistance from Tsai Jing Yuan and Mike Tiernan. The music was composed by Spencer Barnett.